A reminder that the red light on your microphone indicates your mic is off. Turn the red light off to speak and speak directly into the microphone. Thank you. This now meeting is now being recorded. President Helfon, you may begin the retirement board meeting of December 13, 2023 at this time. Okay, great. Um, Madam Secretary, can you call the roll, please? Mr. O'Connor. Present. Mr. Thomas. Present. President Helfon. Present. Mr. Driscoll. Present. A quorum is present. Okay, can you call the next item? Thank you. Item number two, communications. We welcome the public's participation during public comment periods. There will be an opportunity for general public comment at this meeting after closed session, and there will be an opportunity to comment on each discussion or action item on the agenda. Each comment is limited to two minutes. Public comment will be taken both in person and remotely by call-in. For each item, the board will take public comment first from people attending the meeting in person and then from people attending the meeting remotely. Comments or opportunities to speak during the public comment period are available via phone by calling 415-655-0001, access code 2663-414-9768, then pound and pound again. When connected, you will hear the meeting discussions, but you will be muted and in listening mode only. When your item of interest comes up, please press star three to be added to the speaker line. Best practices are to call from a quiet location, speak clearly and slowly, and turn down your TV or radio. Please note that city policies along with federal, state, and local law prohibit discriminatory or harassing conduct against city employees and others during public comment meetings and will not be tolerated. Moreover, public comment is permitted only on matters within the jurisdiction of this meeting body. We thank you for joining us. Thank you. Ms. Madam Secretary, can you call the next item, please? Item number 3A, closed session, discussion item, personnel. Okay, What's, we're going to go into closed session. And, um, let's leave open and move into closed. Should, do we have an estimated time for it? It shouldn't take that long.
the charter provisions are motivated and revisit and say say aye. Aye. Three retirement board meeting. Move to approve the minutes. Second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. aye. We, uh, we should have a public comment on that first before the vote. Public comment, please. Hi, Darlene, can you hear my audio? Oh, I can hear you. <laughs> Thanks. We have an estimated time for it. It shouldn't take that long. item schedule of the 2024 madam secretary there are no can we have a roll call please mr o'connor present commissioner thomas present president helfon
public comment on this item. President Health Fund, we are now recording and resuming open session at this time. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Can we have a roll call, please? Commissioner O'Connor. Present. Commissioner Thomas. Present. President Health Fund. Present. Commissioner Driscoll. Present. Commissioner Bridges. Present. A quorum is present. Great. Uh, motions in order to disclose or not disclose what we did in closed session. Second. It's been moved and seconded. Those are, all those in favor? Aye. 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 Those opposed? Okay. Madam Secretary, you want to call for public comment? Thank you. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none. Callers, if you have not already done so, please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Next item, please. Thank you. Item number four, general public comment. A reminder that public comment is limited to two minutes. Madam Secretary, we have two public uh, in-person requests, which I'll call them. Anyone who has a public comment on this item, please stand up to the podium. <coughs> Do we have any general public comment? Jordan, Jordan Greenslade. Oh, is this item 14? No, it's item 4, general public comment. No? See no uh, in-person public comment on this item. Callers, please press star 3 to be added to the queue. Moderator, are there any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. So these... Two in person. That's for item number 14. Oh, that's for 14. Sorry, my fault. My bad. Okay. Next item, please. Item number five, action item. Approval of the minutes of the November 8th, 2023 retirement board meeting. Move to approve the minutes. Second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. Wait, um, we should have a public comment on that first before the vote. Public comment, please. Do we have any in-house public comment on this item? Seeing none, are there any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay. It's been moved and seconded. All those in favor? 
Aye. Aye. Those opposed? Next item, please. Item number six, action item, consent calendar. Second. Second. Okay, can we have public comment, please? Do we have any in-house public comment on this item? Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Item's, item's motion's been made and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Next item, please. Item number seven, discussion item, schedule of the 2024 retirement board meetings. Commissioners, before I comment on that, I just want to remind everybody that when you speak, if you can make sure to take your microphone off mute, and off mute means there's no light on. If it's red, it is on mute. Um, this action item here it, um, is consistent with practice. So typically the board in December sets the meeting schedule for uh, the following full calendar year. Um, and um, where we are right now is the board had approved an 11 a.m. Uh, second Wednesday board meeting through the fiscal year. So that only goes through June. So I wanted to, consistent with practice, provide the, you the opportunity should you so choose to um, formally approve a schedule that is, again, the second Wednesday of every month starting at 11 a.m. for the remainder, of, sorry, for the full uh, calendar year of 2024. There you have it. So, a motion? Uh, well, Mr. President, so question. So you have it on here through December, but the vote is going to be on through June 12th. Is that correct? Uh, no. it. The board had previously approved it for a fiscal year, so only through June. The vote today, if you so choose, would be to do it for the full calendar year, so through December. I guess my concern with that is... I'm sorry? I said my concern is that we our, our year fiscal year goes through June 30th, and then we vote, and we may change officers. Things may change over. So why are we voting for it? July through December is my question. I was following past practice. Mm. Just a question. question. Yeah, you have a question. Just if, if we wanted to change this because new information shows up, we can change this later at a later date, right? Correct. Correct. What this allows us to do is to continue with this schedule without making it a special meeting, um, because starting at eleven would be considered a special meeting if it hadn't been approved, but we can always uh, amend later. Or the other option is to not approve this today and revisit in, say, Mar March or sometime later, but with enough lead, lead time for the team to prepare and, and everybody to have it on their schedules accordingly. But if we were to approve this today, we could still revisit you in could. a few months if new information. So you in, in light of that, I'd like to move to adopt this, the recommendation. Right. I think it just, uh, the whole thing is efficiency and um, ability to plan. It's easier to do it, change it, rather than start again. Okay, um, public comment. I second the motion. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. public comment on this item? Seeing none, a reminder to any callers, please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, are there any callers? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. 
Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? <clears throat> Next item, please. Item number nine, action item. Approve executive director and actuarial services Wait. coordinator Six. performance evaluation policies. Uh, I think no. we skipped an item. It's eight. Oh, I'm sorry. Item number eight, discussion item, personnel committee report. Commissioner O'Connor, if you'd like to add anything to the report that is in the materials. Uh, no, nothing other than uh, I believe it was uh, great teamwork by the, the personnel committee. Uh, we tried to act with transparency, and thus that's why we uh, brought it to the, the full board for discussion. Thank you. Any comments? Public comment, please. Thank you. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none, moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. There are no calls. Public comment is now closed. Madam Secretary, next item. Item number nine, action item. Approve executive director and actuarial services coordinator, performance evaluation policies. Commissioners, the policies that you see before you were approved by the Personnel Committee to bring forward to the board for your full approval. Um, there are two policies here. One is the Executive Director Performance Evaluation Policy. We've added in the concept of a self-assessment, which is consistent with what this board had discussed uh, previously and wanting to incorporate into uh, the policy. Likewise, we have formalized the Actuarial Services Coordinator Policy, which had been referenced, um, but um, um, we did not have. So we developed that actuarial services coordinator policy to be very consistent with the executive director policy. And again, that's what uh, the personnel committee had reviewed in session, in their session. Commissioners, any questions? If not, we can have a motion, please. Motion to approve the year of revisions. Second. Okay, uh, it's, it's been made, motion's been made. Can we have public comment, please? Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none, a reminder to callers to please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. We vote. Thank you for the, all the guidance in getting the personnel committee fired up again in motion. It's been moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Great. Next item, please. Item number 10, discussion item, Chief Executive Officer's Report. I have two uh, items to update the the board on here. First, I would just encourage you to review the training opportunities that Nassiman put forward in their materials. There are some additional uh, training items that I think hadn't been included uh, uh, previously, so um, take a look at that and, and certainly reach out to us if you'd like to participate in any of those conferences. Secondly, on a legal uh, matter, I wanted to share some good news regarding a class action lawsuit that our city attorney uh, uh, had uh, previously discussed with you in April. The system had 
has been a defendant in the Carroll uh, versus the city and county of San Francisco, the retirement board and the uh, and SFERS, that the plaintiff filed a class action in the California Superior Court alleging age discrimination and how the city and SFERS pays out disability retirement benefits. Following a trial, the court issued a final statement of decision in the city's favor. The court held that, number one, the charter provisions are motivated by credited years of service, not age at hire, and thus do not discriminate based on age. Number two, the city did not breach any contractual obligation it had with plaintiffs regarding retirement benefits. And number three, the charter's disability retirement formula does not violate equal protection as it is rationally based on credited years of service, not age at hire. So again, that is uh, good news and um, certainly available and, and, and Cecilia is available should you have any questions on that update. Any questions? Is that the report? That is the Great. report. Okay, <laughs> thank you. Um, public comment, please. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? See none. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Okay, we still have a quorum, right? All those, yes. uh, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. I believe that was a discussion, discussion item. item only. What? That was a, a discussion item only, so no, no need to vote. Okay. Got to get this sort of in coordination with what's written and what's not. Okay. Um, so, okay, we'll call the next item and just for that we're now on item 12, right? 11. 11, right. And give me one second. We're going to do the, the usual. Okay, let's do the 11, 12. We'll do, go through. We'll do the 12 because you guys are already sitting down. And then we'll uh, grab some our the lunch and bring it in and wait. Uh, patiently for Andrew's stage show. <laughs> okay, let's do uh, call item 11. Item number 11, action item, investment fee update. Good afternoon, commissioners. Can you hear me okay? Great, thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. We only have two items on the DC calendar. The first item, as indicated, is an action item to move the remaining Northern Trust Index Funds into a new lower-cost CIT share class. As you recall, we were here last month to request moving the Fidelity Fund and two other index funds into the lowest-cost uh, lowest CIT share class. But since then, at the request of staff and consultant, Northern Trust has agreed to reduce costs for the remaining uh, two index funds we have with them, which is the bond index fund and the SMID cap. Um, a memo from Callan has been included and is reflected on the screen to demonstrate the lower pricing and the savings as a result. Greg Ungerman is here to provide more details as needed. Greg, can you provide some additional context on this item? Yeah, good afternoon, everyone. It's, it's pretty straightforward. It continues to be an ongoing uh, evaluation with all your service investment managers that we uh, try to continue to press uh, the fee button 
and uh, achieve lower cost for your participants. Um, so Northern Trust has demonstrated a track record of adding two more funds uh, to the list to be approved uh, today. The table just reminds you what we just approved. Uh, the dollars in the far right-hand column are just an annualized number. These are going to change depending on how much in assets uh, it, uh, applies. And just a footnote is we didn't do the calculation on the fee savings for the target date funds, but I did ask T. Rowe, your custom target date manager, and they believe it'll be a, a, a 0.1 basis point impact to the target date funds, assuming all these uh, get approved for today. So I'll see if there's any questions, but from our perspective, it's very straightforward. I just want to translate what you said to make the point. The savings stays with the members participating, not the fund. It's each individual gets to save the money. Correct. Okay. Any questions? Motions in order, please. I move it acceptance of the fee recommendation change. Second. Call for public comment. I'm sorry, who was seconded that motion? I think it was him. Thank you. Commissioner. Do we have any public comment on this item? Thank you, hearing none. Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no calls. Public comment is now closed. It's been moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Thank you. Next item, please. Item number 12, discussion item, San Francisco Deferred Compensation Plan Monthly Report. Thank you, Ms. Armanino. Commissioners, this is our ongoing monthly report to the full board. The attached report is as of the end of October and covers the money movement for the month as well as investment performance and demographic information. There is always a delay as we're trying to reconcile the data. That's why this information usually has a one-month lag. Um, if there is any interest in investment commentary for October, Mr. Ungerman is here to provide that at the President's pleasure. However, since we're already in December and the market has moved, I wanted to know if this is something that you'd be interested in. And if not, we can certainly move on to the other updates. I'll move, it to, I'll move that question to my fellow commissioners. To we... okay. no. right. Thank you, President Helfand. As noted in your materials, the IRS has recently announced in, um, in November the 2024 contribution limits. So regular contributions have increased for the SFDCP by $500. There has been no change for the catch-up amounts. This means that the normal contribution limits for 2024 will be 23000 for those under age 50. For those over age 50, the limit will be 30,500. Special catch-up will be 46,000 compared to this year's 45K max. A flyer has been included in your materials for reference and also an interdepartmental email was created for uh, department gatekeepers for distribution. So these are the communication folks or the HR contacts across the city, including DHR and DPH and many others. Uh, we count on their support and hope to continue fostering good relationships with them so all CCS employees have access to maximizing their benefits. 
I'm also happy to report that our SFDCP counselors were invited to the payroll user group meeting, which is hosted by the controller's office. At this meeting, hundreds of payroll officers across the city were able to actually see our SFDCP counselors face-to-face -face on Teams to help with recognition and also to start the conversation. Payroll officers play a critical role in reminding CCS employees of their SFDCP benefits. We've also included a payroll calendar for your reference. So these are the days that contributions are actually deducted from their paychecks. Um, just a few other remarks. I've always appreciated the board's awareness of how small and internal our uh, SFDCP team is as we meet the needs of over 34,000 participants. Today, I'd like to acknowledge the hard work and the recent hustle of our four SFDCP counselors. As you know, Chris Wisdom has joined the SFDCP team from investments. He is acclimated very well to the plan, as well as the counselor role. Tony Chu, who is also fluent in Chinese, continues to conduct in-person meetings on the fifth floor in this building. And Michael Wade and Matthew Smith, who are both fluent in Spanish, continue making inroads in the field. We did say goodbye to Joshua Bucket um, last month as he's moved on to another opportunity. We're in the process of recruiting his replacement and hope to start the new year with five counselors in the field to support our 7x7. Seven seven. Finally attached is our quarterly plan review as of September. It has been provided for your reference and Bishop Bestine, our relationship manager from Voya, is here to talk about a few of the slides and to answer any questions you may have. Thank you, commissioners. I'll just take a few minutes. Again, Bishop Bastine with Voya Financial. A um, couple things to point out. First on slide four, I did want to point out to you that we did see a slight increase in the number of overall counts, again, for the quarter. This represents the sixth consecutive quarter in which account growth has taken place. It does result in a slight increase in overall plan participation of less than one half percent which is noted later in the presentation itself. On slide five, uh, it does note a decrease in overall plan assets based on market conditions that took place during the quarter, but also pleased to report that as of yesterday, assets actually are above 4.85 billion in total, uh, actually reaching the second highest goal since September of 2021 uh, for the plan. Um, most importantly, I'd like to spend a few minutes on slide six. Um, if you've reviewed that slide, you will have noted there is a rather large uh, rollover number listed on that slide. Uh, $42.7 million is noted for the quarter. Uh, we've spent some time taking a look at that, that number as well as the activity uh, surrounding it. Uh, on average, I can tell you that the plan has averaged roughly $24 to $27 million in rollovers over the past several quarters. But we expect that most of this has occurred due to market activity, uh, the chasing, if you will, of credited rates, you know, that are offered either through banks or credit unions uh, versus what's offered to participants through the stable value option. But then also you have, you know, an aging population too that is looking to roll assets out of the plan. A further analysis of the, the, the numbers though, uh, I think it was, if I remember correctly, 300, just over 300 participants that rolled money out of the plan during the quarter just 60 of those account for three quarters of the assets that was rolled out. Uh, that's an average of an account balance of 250,000 or higher. It's somewhat arbitrary on my, no my choice of how to, to slice it, but when I saw that it was three quarters of the, the assets, it was a bit surprising. 
Um, we have been discussing with Ms. Chui Justin, and we'll have further discussions later in the week about our communications plan for 2024. Included in that is the intent to do a targeted mailing to participants, reminding them of their intention or their ability, I should say, to stay within the plan. Additionally, I think we're going to talk a little bit further about targeted communications for pre-retirees as well, determining like a certain age level and or uh, career length that we can target those individuals. Again, talking about the advantages of staying in the plan. Counselors in the plan are consistently talking about the option of retaining assets in the plan. Also from the standpoint, if an intent is to roll money out, to keep some level of assets in the plan, uh, even if that's just $1,000, keeping that $1,000 in the plan does allow them to roll the money back into the plan at a later point, as opposed to closing out their accounts altogether. Additionally, I have a call <coughs> next week with our call center leadership team to discuss their role within the, the rollover process. As you can imagine, many of the rollovers that are processed are done directly through the rollover, or excuse me, the call center staff, and we'd like to pull them into that discussion as well. I'm happy to discuss any other questions that you might have regarding distributions. Uh, there are further slides, you know, specifically slides 18 to 20 that highlight the, the data, as well as the firms that are receiving the funds uh, from the rollovers as well. I'll pause there for a minute, just in case. Any questions or comments from the board? Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's more of a comment. Uh, the numbers you covered, plus what Diane said, obviously when uh, fees are down, participates number is up, and basically uh, net cash in and out is up. Those are all good signs. But we've yet, and this is more of a committee thing, but the board would have to agree to it eventually, is we've yet to develop a success definition. Maybe you have them with your other clients, but if our mission is helping members prepare for re the financial aspect of the retirement, I think we have to eventually now, there's been so much work being done by your staff as well as Diane's, that maybe we ought to start thinking about what will be our success that we're trying to achieve for all of the participants to include those people who do work for the city but have not yet joined Deferred Comp. Thank you. Any other comments? Okay, great. This is a discussion item. Uh, we'll have public comment, please. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none, moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you, hearing no callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you. Thank you. Um, do we wanna, Russia, do you wanna eat, get food, and, or do you wanna wait one more through Anna's presentation? I'm happy to plow through if folks are happy to plow through. Okay. That's good. What? What's you bring food and eat here, too. Yeah, we are. Yeah. All right, okay. Let's take a 15-minute uh, break, okay?
Oh no, we're way past that. It's <laughs> warm. Thank you. Nobody called in sick today? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No. The agenda on the back. And resuming open session at this time. Thank you. Thank you, Madam Secretary. Um, at this, let's call item. Um, where we were on item? Item 13. 13, yeah. Discussion item, report on investment performance of the retirement fund for the quarter ended September 30, 2023. Thank you. Sorry, we took a few minutes. And no problem. We might continue to eat. That's okay. Thank you. The busy agenda on the back end here. We are aware of that. We will try to be efficient with our time today. Uh, thank you again. Good to see everybody. Uh, today we are going to review third quarter performance uh, for the first plan. Uh, and also as we go through this report, uh, introduce some new formatting. Um, again, this is our second iteration of the executive summary. Um, we've made some changes based on feedback from staff, but also some of the feedback we got in September during our initial discussion. And I, I imagine this will continue to be an iterative uh, process as we work through the report and continue to get feedback. So we welcome your, your comments. Um, maybe starting on page two of the report, you'll see uh, kind of a revamped uh, first couple slides here. And um, uh, yeah, page two. So while we're moving forward, I think you have the material in front of you. Page two is kind of spurs by the numbers. These tiles are meant to kind of give you high-level bullets, the most important things that we, we can think of in terms of monitoring the overall health of the portfolio. Some of these metrics are up-to-date in terms of uh, updated performance measures. Some of them, such as your funded status, reflect um, funded status as of the most recent fiscal year. Uh, in terms of some of these high-level bullet points, you can see AUM of the fund as of September 30th was $33.5 billion. Um, your 10-year return as of that uh, third quarter was 8.4%. Um, excess returns over that 10-year time frame, uh, a positive 66 basis points, and your funded status sits, uh, again, as of fiscal year 2024, just under 98%. You continue to be top decile relative to peers in terms of your five-year and 10-year rolling performance. Um, you can see the leverage value. Currently, there is no strategic leverage being utilized within the portfolio. Uh, any leverage that you had was taken off over the last uh, year or so. So currently, no leverage and no material leverage at play in the portfolio. And then those last four tiles are trying to give you an idea of where you are at a high level relative to your asset class ranges. Uh, we'll dive a little bit deeper into those, but those um, check boxes and, and alert signals are meant to give you an idea of are you within range uh, for that segment of the portfolio. 53.6% uh, allocation to private markets. You do see kind of an alert there, and that is to indicate that your real asset portfolio is actually slightly um, overweight relative to the range. You want to turn your microphone on? Oh, this one? Oh, oh okay. Yes. Right. Thanks. Sorry. You guys can hear me okay? Yeah. Okay, good. 
Um, so uh, as we go through that on page three, we also have uh, some highlights in terms of your overall performance um, meant to kind of cover again high level bullets. Um, absolute return for the portfolio was negative in the third quarter, um, down just about negative 1%. That was actually better than 88% of your peers. Um, we did see kind of uh, rate uh, sell-off in the third quarter, um, certainly impacted those with higher allocations to fixed income. You are lower uh, allocation to fixed income relative to your peers, so that was why your portfolio outperformed that peer universe. Uh, in terms of diversifying uh, asset sleeve of the portfolio, the absolute return portfolio uh, delivered positive returns relative to your policy benchmark. Uh, you recall we slightly changed the policy benchmark for absolute return from the T-bill plus 5% to T-bills plus 3%, and that was approved uh, by the board. That has been reflected now as, uh, starting in the third quarter. In the growth area of the portfolio, private equity did deliver uh, alpha for that third quarter. A lot of that has to do with the benchmark mismatch component. Nevertheless, it did outperform that public markets policy plus a premium. And then in your income capital preservation portfolio, uh, private credit continues to serve kind of as uh, a ballast for the overall fund return. Uh, liquid credit also contributed uh, positive excess returns. And I'll do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of these components of the portfolio. Uh, I do want to introduce my colleague, Tom Toth. Um, he's going to talk a little bit about third quarter markets overall before I do that deeper dive. So with that, I'll pass it over to Tom. Thanks very much, Ali. If we could move forward to, to page four, uh, similar to the highlights for the portfolio, these tiles are just meant to provide some context for moves in specific economic indicators as well as trends. I won't, I won't read all the numbers to you, but just make some general comments um, around the interest rate environment, which has really been the primary driver, um, certainly, of, uh, of capital markets. Uh, market expectations for future short-term interest rates uh, trended higher through much of the third quarter um, as the market digested the Fed's um, message of holding interest rates higher for longer um, in a bid to continue to reduce inflation. Uh, since peaking at over 9%, the inflation rate has moved down significantly and currently sits at about 3.7%. But it's important to remember that that rate of 3.7 is still materially higher than the Fed's stated target inflation rate of 2%. Uh, in the third quarter, the economy did exhibit stronger momentum in uh, GDP growth um, and positive, though moderating, job growth um, as we still sit at a historically low level of unemployment at 3.7%. Um, as we've moved forward through the fourth quarter, uh, we've seen a pretty meaningful reversal in the interest rate environment. And what I mean by that um, is just today, the Federal Reserve held short-term interest rates steady and indicated the potential for cutting interest rates in 2024 uh, three times. Um, the benchmark 10-year Treasury, which had moved as high as about 5%, is currently trading uh, around 4% with that message from the Fed today. And this move in, in rates lower in the fourth quarter has been quite supportive of risk asset prices, and you'll see that performance reflected um, in next quarter's report. Now, as we think about the economic environment going into 2024, uh, I think it's important to consider that 
this higher level of interest rates relative to where we were uh, 12 to 24 months ago uh, will tend to impact the real economy with a lag. And that lag has historically ranged from 6 to 18 months or so. Um, Short-term interest rates above 4% have really been in effect for only about 12 months at this point, and rates above 5% have been in, in effect for less than six months. So those higher rates are moving right into that range of six to 18 months where we would begin to expect to see some real economic impacts. Um, we're starting to see that somewhat in things like um, uh, higher credit card balances, increasing delinquencies, and we want to be really cognizant of how that's likely to impact consumer spending going forward, as that's an incredibly important component of the U.S. economy. Yep. And this, this shifting market environment has implications for uh, the important discussions we'll have around asset allocation and portfolio management. Um, as you consider uh, our, our expectations for equity risk premiums remain compressed relative to historical um, uh, expectations. Just to give you some numbers, and these are moving targets, admittedly, uh, our current equity risk premium expectation sits at just over 1% relative to historical experience of about 25 to 3%. Uh, we'll discuss all of this in much more detail as we move through the new year uh, with a review of our asset class uh, return and risk expectations, uh, which, as you know, are key building blocks for the upcoming asset liability study. Now, let me stop there and see if there are any questions about the economy or markets in general before turning it back to, to Ali. Great. Thanks, Tom. Um, so moving forward in the report, Page seven, uh, this is the asset allocation compliance uh, chart. Um, you can kind of clearly see all of the asset classes. Those gray bars indicate the ranges around the strategic targets, and the triangles, upside down inverted triangles, indicate kind of where you are in that range. Really, two points to hit on. Uh, you are slightly out of compliance with your treasury portfolio, um, underweight relative to that range. Um, sh that should also factor in your cash allocation, which does have an allocation to some short-term uh, T-bills as well. So when you kind of combine both the view of, of the cash management uh, within that cash account and your treasury portfolio, you're, you're fairly closer to your target than indicated on this chart just in, its, uh, in, in the silos that are indicated here. In addition, your real assets portfolio is slightly overweight relative to the asset allocation ranges. Again, as you are implementing the strategic asset allocation from uh, several years ago, moving lower uh, as part of that implementation, uh, real assets you know we, we know are, are more challenging to sell. They are private assets. We also have the, mag the impact of the denominator effect as the market sold off last year that inflates overall a private market uh, asset class exposures. So that is also a factor here. So we don't necessarily have concerns about where you are from an asset allocation compliance uh, standpoint, but this is just a, an affirmation of where you stand relative to those targets. You'll see on page eight a more detailed view of that same information. I won't cover all of these numbers. This is just meant to supplement the information on page seven and give you uh, more specifics uh, for those who are interested. Uh, moving forward to page 14, uh, this is the overall view of performance. 
Uh, I already touched on the uh, first quarter returns down just under 1%. Uh, you can see over the longer term, uh, strong absolute levels of return uh, over the three, five, 10 year numbers, absolute returns, um, excess returns are also positive over those um, time horizons. There has been underperformance over the recent term, much of that to do with your private market exposure and the volatility associated um, with excess returns given the fluctuations between public markets and private markets. Um, but again, relative to your discount rate and relative also to the reference portfolio, which is that uh, mix of 60% public equities, 30% fixed income, and 10% private real assets, you can see the portfolio is doing very well over uh, the long term. Moving to page 15, this is the rolling percentile ranking. This gives you a view of where you stand relative to peers based on a rolling five-year metric. Uh, the chart here is boring. For this chart, boring is good. You want to always kind of be in this same range. So the good news is you're uh, in that kind of top five percentile consistently on a realized basis uh, when looking over the last five years or so. On page 16, uh, we also show where you stand relative to peers in terms of not only return, but also factoring in risk. Um, again, positive story here. You want to be as far in the upper left quadrant as you can be. Uh, as you can clearly see relative to your peers, SPURS is kind of the best as it relates to that risk return ratio. Um, you can also see the public market kind of reference portfolio in Maroon, something that was added based on some feedback that we got in September, gives you some perspective as to where public market um, volatility has been relative to a more diversified portfolio. Um, and so again, positive story here, um, nothing new I would imagine from what you've seen probably in years past. Uh, I'll flip forward, uh, last couple slides are in relation to attribution. So if you recall in the September report, we didn't have the returns-based kind of Brinson attribution. Um, there was still some implementation that we had to get through to add that. We have now added that in. So I'll, I'll walk through this um, on a couple pages. First on page 20, this is the three-year total fund attribution. And so the idea with any attribution is to give a story of what was the driver of excess return over that time horizon. Uh, you can see in the top left uh, section of the report, SFERS outperformed the benchmark by about 30 basis points uh, annualized over that three-year period. The top right section breaks that down into kind of the three major, major components. One is the contribution from any deviations relative to your asset allocation. So were you overweight or underweight your asset classes, and did that result in any positive excess or underperformance? In orange, you have the next layer down, which is to the degree that your uh, individual composites and managers within those composites that are active in nature added value. And so you can see over that three-year period a slight detraction of about 10 basis points. And then in purple, uh, there is what we call the other effects. Um, other names for this are kind of market timing or trading effects. They just speak to the residual uh, that we calculate based on the methodology of assuming kind of buy and hold monthly returns. That should typically uh, be a smaller component of it, has nothing really to do with any type of skill or decision, except to the extent that this is a large, sophisticated institutional portfolio that needs to generate cash from time to time, and sometimes that leads to slight underperformance or outperformance relative to policy. 
The bottom layer just gives you insights into the underlying drivers of those components by asset class. You'll see in the bottom left the average active weight over that three-year period. So this gives you an indication of were you overweight or underweight on average over that three-year period. For example, public equities, the average underweight has been about 3% over that time horizon. Conversely, private equity has been overweight uh, almost 6% over that time horizon. When we factor in the returns uh, over time, you, you get that green uh, middle uh, table in the bottom. That gives you the attribution effect by asset class. So the combination of those overweights and underweights manifested in terms of those contributions you see there. Uh, they all are kind of smaller, uh, which is um, ideally what you want, unless there's an active view that you're trying to take. Uh, what is the optimal kind of excess return that we always talk about with clients is coming from your managers in terms of the skill that you pay potentially for, uh, particularly for with active management. For that three-year period, you can see uh, that uh, that 10 basis points of underperformance was really a myriad of a couple things. Public equities underperformed. Um, relative to their policy benchmark, and that resulted in that about negative 1.3% contribution. That was offset by outperformance within your liquid credit uh, portfolio, as well as some of the alpha that you uh, achieved within the private credit and private equity uh, composites. And so those all combined to give you that negative 10 basis point contribution. Slide 21 is the same thing, just more uh, presented in a different visual way to give you the combination of all of those effects by asset class. Uh, I won't uh, walk through all of this in detail. The, the last thing I will cover is page 22. This is just a five-year attribution, so the same concept, adding on two more years. Um, here we can see that over that five-year period, the portfolio outperformed by 1%. What is the difference between uh, what we saw over the three-year and the five-year period? Well, the, the major thing was the uh, public equity portfolio. You can see its underperformance was uh, much smaller, and so that negative 1.3% contribution was closer to zero, and so that led to stronger outperformance. So the way to read both of those together is you can kind of, your takeaway there is the public equities portfolio's underperformance over the last couple years is what's been the major uh, detractor for excess returns for the overall portfolio. There are a lot of things that have led to that. Uh, we've seen uh, this year, for example, the run-up in the Magnificent Seven stocks. So to the degree that you have any kind of underweight to any of those seven stocks throughout your portfolio, that will lead to some underperformance. Last year, we had some different uh, dynamics with, obviously, the uh, rate increases and the overall drawdown that we saw. That has led to some challenges for, for active management. Um, but overall, um, this will continue to be a report that we want to continue to grow and expand based on your comments. Um, there are materials in the back in the appendix that are more detailed in terms of peer analysis and some of our marker commentary. Um, but with that, I will pause and see if there are any questions. Uh, thank you for the presentation. I did have a, a just a brief question on, on uh, the area around the, the slides uh, 14 and I'm sorry, 15 and 16, th that area. Okay. Uh, my question is just more about the, the comps. We always, like in our training, are told to kind of take a grain of salt, the comparative analysis to other plans. 
Um, and here, one of the questions I had was just about <clears throat> how you went with such a broad category of all public plans with one bill. Is there a narrower category that might be more beneficial uh, for co comparison to our plan? Where, may, as you point out, these are kind of, especially with slide 15, there's a boring slide. Is there like a way to, maybe it would explain more if we were compared to a narrower category of peers? Yeah, uh, Commissioner Thomas. Um there are different categories within the investment metrics universes. I, I believe maybe you had a similar question about this uh, in, in September. Um, there are some lim there are certainly limitations in terms of how much you can kind of bisect uh, this this universe. So, for example, we may be able to go to a uh, public plan universe greater than say 10 billion to give you a, a better slice of larger public plans. Um, so, happy to take that feedback on and look at different other universes and maybe come back with several other um, um, versions of it to ultimately arrive at something that's useful. But uh, I, I would say that regardless, I still think you're, the, the results would be the same. Given your risk, your return profile, you're going to be highly ranked relative to almost any peer universe that we would come up with. Thanks. <clears throat> I'd like to follow up on that point, though. Um, on that particular page, I forget if it's weighted by institutional investor or by the, by the dollars they're managing, because this goes to the one of the later pages where you go the 60, 30, 10. Your predecessor used to do 60, 40, we put the 10% in, because we run at least 37% illiquid. So I'd rather see a larger plan that does similar type of investing, or at least they have the size to do the level of illiquid investing we do. A billion dollar plan is not going to do meaningful private equity. Maybe not even meaningful real estate. So I mean, if we're supposed to get a good feeling out of this, if it's a little more representative, I think it would be more meaningful. Certainly we'll take that feedback again and uh, update as we can given um, the options available to us, but uh, definitely would say that your comments resonate. You're going to take the feedback to somebody or are you going to do it? We will do it. Thank you. Yes. I have another set of questions. Um, um, the out of compliance issue on pages seven and eight, those are small numbers. Is it just more of a denominator effect or is there something where the CIO is going to do something? Because one's over, one's under. I know it takes time to rebalance things, but I'm just wondering, the word out of compliance is sort of a, can be a slap on the hand, but I'm just wondering if it's, it triggers to do something. Thank you for the, the question. And, and if you'll recall, on certainly on the cash treasury issue, that's something I've been highlighting in the CIO report in, in our monthly meetings. On that front, as we go through the asset liability study and think about our approach to, to, to cash management, to treasuries, to liquidity, I think we'll probably evolve the, the guidelines and guardrails around that, uh, and that will um, lead us to where we are today. We're not concerned about our, our, our exposure because we're sitting on cash and have a zero cash balance. So um, we think we have we we have the liquidity that we need, and we are invested in a way that's in the spirit of the guidelines. We will probably clarify those guidelines as we do the asset liability study. On the real asset piece, it is uh, multifaceted as to why we're where we're at. One is denominator effect. Two is when the assets have done done well, um, you know we don't want to force sell to, to move the guidelines, and as we we don't want to also dramatically um, slow down our pacing such that we get vintage year risk. So we're trying to be methodical and thoughtful so that we maximize the risk and return as we bring it down to the the target level. Okay. 
Okay, uh, great. Uh, out of compliance has a negative context, but it's you have to understand it uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, then the two columns where the interim targets 100 and the long-term targets 103. Is that the portfolio leverage difference? Correct. The three percent. Correct. Which may change again if we increase that amount, which based on the developments, maybe we will. That could make the compliance issue start to change again. You're Correct. out of compliance because of what we decided to do. Yes, and, and I believe that that interim uh, benchmark will continue to evolve as you move forward. So leverage may be one of the components that gets. Uh, okay, so we've set that. broad ranges for each target, but again, to be out compliance outside the range. That's why it needs a small explanation. Um, um, as for one or two of the relative, hold on, let me stop. Are you going to keep going on one part of your report? Or are you finished? We, we are finished with our comments. Yeah. Okay, because then there's obviously one set of three or numbers that are in the red. I'm looking forward to seeing the June 30th report broken down to the next level. Because there's going to be a lot of a level of detail then to understand that negative six or eight, whatever it is. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Joe, oh, you finished? Any further questions? Yes. Uh, do we have any in person public comment on this item? Seeing none, moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. President Halfon, you got All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Can't even get a compliment off. <laughs> I heard it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let it be noted also that Supervisor Safai has joined. Uh, next item, please. Item number fourteen, discussion item, annual ESG update. Has it been a year, Andrew? <laughs> Perhaps as the team is setting up, I can uh, lead in with a couple introductory comments and then I'll turn it over to Kurt who will outline how we're going to approach this item and the, the items uh, following. Um, what I really want to convey to the board as, is the, the SPURS team that you have before you and, and frankly the broader organization really does have a forward thinking approach to ESG based on our fiduciary duty. Uh, ESG is a really complicated and complex topic, and the team has implemented a, a robust framework um, that encompasses engagement, encompasses investment manager diligence, investment manager monitoring, and broader partnerships. Um, this broad framework is a, is a process that enables us to really have good practices around risk and evaluating the materiality of those risks, again, consistent with fiduciary duty. Um, 
So, so the other uh, point that I'd really like to convey is ESG is just not a point-in-time exercise. It is something that we incorporate when we look to hire managers, and even once a, a mandate is funded, uh, we continue to monitor, just like we monitor investment uh, risks, we continue to monitor ESG risks and have policies in, 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 in place and processes in place to continue to monitor, evaluate, and uh, engage as necessary. Um, so with that, I'll turn it over to Kurt. Thank you, Allison. Good, good afternoon, Commissioners. As has been noted, today's our, our big ESG, our annual update. So I'll, I'll kind of set the table a little bit, make a brief comment, and then hand it over to Andrew. Now, so today we're, we have seven items that are related to ESG that we'll present, the first of which is Andrew will provide an overview, or rather a, a review of our 2023 uh, ESG platform. Um, which again focuses on three pillars, active ownership, which will highlight some of our collaborative work in the areas of board diversity and climate, ESG investment management, which again is the integration of the consideration of ESG factors in our investment decision-making processes, and collaboration and communication will highlight certain partnerships uh, uh, with some of our, our sorry, for certain coalitions rather, and also give an update on our 2050 uh, net zero ambition. Uh, this, in turn, will be followed by six action items where staff will make recommendations regarding the composition of restricted lists within certain sectors, and these include our climate transition framework, which focuses on oil and gas companies, tobacco, Sudan, firearms, thermal coal, and Russian companies. In each of these instances, well, perhaps not so much the first one, but for most of them, we will uh, keep our comments to very, very, or to be, the, our comments will be very, very brief. Uh, but, of course, we're available to answer any questions. But in, these, in each of these instances, we'll take them as individual items, and you'll vote on the prevailing restricted lists. Uh, but before I hand it over to Andrew, I'm going to, uh, I guess, reaffirm or restate some of the things that Allison st stated. In fact, I noted some of these things last year. In 2022, you may recall that uh, the concept of ESG investing came under a lot of criticism. And, and in our view, some of it was justified that ESG as a moniker has been um, can be kind of commercialized with the investment management industry. And unfortunately, the moniker ESG has become super, super uh, politicized. Uh, but as I said then, and it remains true now, as all of that to us is noise, uh, I want to reiterate that the approach that we've taken uh, is one in which we incorporate the consideration of environmental, social, and governance matters material matters in a manner that is consistent with our fiduciary duties. And our, our approach is actually somewhat simplistic in that we evaluate ESG factors as risks to be identified, measured, monitored, and managed. And increasingly so, we're considering ESG factors as a means to identify investment opportunities. So reaffirming some of the things that Allison has said, but just noting that our approach here is sort of grounded in fiduciary duties, focusing with risk or focusing on risks and increasingly identifying some investment opportunities. So with that, I'll hand it over to Andrew. And Andrew, I'll also ask you to introduce Blake and put Blake on the hotspot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Kurt. Uh, good afternoon, Commissioners. Looking forward to the, the presentation and conversation today. Um, but as Kurt said, before I start, I want to introduce you to, to Blake Brodnax, our newest team member, joined us last month as an ESG investment officer. Um, it was a really competitive search process, um, and we were really pleased to, to be able to hire Blake. Um, he has a great background in both public and private markets, so made him uniquely well-positioned for this role. Um, 
and we'll just pass it to him to uh, give a little bit of uh, overview of his experience in education. Yeah, for sure. So my name is Blake. I grew up in the Midwest, went to the University of Michigan. I started my career in public markets doing ESG at Wellington Management, and then eventually went over to TPG, which is a private equity firm based out of the Bay Area, doing ESG for their private equity and growth equity funds, and most recently worked at a tech startup that was developing ESG solutions for uh, private equity and venture capital firms to track their ESG data and monitor it. Welcome. Thank you. Well, I'm thrilled to have Blake. You can tell his background lends well to virtually everything that we do. So it's a, it's <coughs> we're very fortunate. Certainly. Um, so yeah, I'll, uh, without further ado, jump into the presentation here. Assuming the slides. There we go. Um, so our agenda today is follows here. Um, first, we'll I'll do a quick overview refresher of our ESG platform. Next, I'll talk about a little bit of the progress areas that we've made in 2023 on each element of that. Uh, as Kurt alluded to, a deeper dive on some of the collaborative engagement efforts that we've undertaken over the last year with publicly traded companies. Um, then a discussion of how we integrate ESG considerations into our investment management process. Uh, finally, highlighting some key partnerships that we maintain and lastly, an update on our progress towards our net zero by 2050 uh, ambition. So I want to, um, you know, I guess echo what, what Kurt and Allison have already said, but, you know, reiterate that despite all the noise that I think is in the market around ESG, um, our strategy has not changed. We, we continue to implement and execute on our three-pillar ESG program that we established in 2018, uh, presented to the board and, and was adopted um, and have been implementing since then. Um, our North Star really is maximizing investment returns, minimizing risk, and approaching any ESG elements that we do um, with the objective of, of contributing to that, that end. Um, our three pillars are, are identified here on the slide. Um, the first is active ownership. Um, this is where we use our shareholder voting and our engagement efforts, um, what I like to call our voice and our vote, uh, so to speak, to focus public companies on long-term financial success. And so we have a variety of ways that we do that. Um, that's all under the, the banner of our active ownership pillar. Second, is uh, ESG integration into our investment management process. Um, this is where ESG considerations are part and parcel with the way that we source, diligence, and maintain our investment manager relationships. And then third, ESG collaboration and communication. Um, here, we're really trying to be participants in and help foster an overall financial market that is focused on long-termism um, and a holistic view of what uh, investment risk and opportunity constitutes. Over the past year, we've made progress on each of these three pillars. Um, some of the highlights are contained uh, on this slide. And then following, I'm going to do a bit of a deeper dive into, into just a few of them. Um, but, but this is our, our summary of activities. Um, the appendix contains summaries of the activities we've participated in um, over prior years, um, which I think is a just good point of reference uh, to have if, if the board is interested. 
So diving into the active ownership pillar, um, last year, we, if you recall, we spent time going into specific engagements with specific companies um, and really talked about what our objectives there, what, what we achieved in terms of outcomes. Um, this year, I want to focus a little bit more on our process um, and particularly the way that we participate in collaborative initiatives uh, with other investors as we engage uh, with companies. Um, I would say that the collaboration is really essential for SFRS um, because it allows us to amplify our voice um, and I like to say sort of punch above our weight um, in terms of engaging with companies where we may not be a top shareholder um, but we do have a viewpoint that we want to communicate um, to those companies. And so when we work, and by collaboration, meaning working with peers, other asset owners um, like SFRS and other um, investors like asset managers, um, when we work with those peers, we can strengthen our message. Um, we can gain legitimacy and influence um, with those companies in a way that we might not be able to do uh, unilaterally. And I think companies really benefit as well because they can hear a coordinated voice um, from investors. Um, they can minimize the number of one-off meetings that they have um, and understand how ESG-aware investors are, are thinking about their company. The first collaboration I want to highlight is one where we work with um, three other California pension peers, uh, CalPERS, CalSTRS, and Lacera. Um, and we've collaborated for the past four years with these groups um, to engage companies on board diversity and governance matters. Um, during the, the past year, the 2022-2023 year, uh, we collectively engaged with 60 public companies that lacked women and people of color uh, on their board. Um, and we had a dialogue with them not only about just thinking about appointing um, and sourcing qualified candidates um, with diverse skills and backgrounds, um, but also engaging with them uh, around their policies uh, and practices uh, for board governance, um, the way that they disclose information to investors, um, and encourage them to adopt best practices there. Um, a key result um, was that 29 of these uh, 60 companies uh, appointed collectively 35 diverse directors. Um, so there was a real outcome from the, the engagements that we had with these companies. Um, and then on the slide there, I won't go into all of that, but there's a host of other um, practices that they adopted in terms of um, governance policies, um, information in their proxy statement, um, the way that they communicate better and are more transparent uh, with investors. The Next collaboration uh, I want to discuss is called Climate Action 100 Plus. Um, and this is an initiative that was formed in 2018, um, brings together uh, about 700 global investors that account for almost 70 trillion in, in total assets. Um, and the objective here is to engage in dialogue with the 170 or so uh, public companies that contribute the most to global greenhouse gas emissions. So, think oil and gas companies, utilities, um, airlines, chemicals and materials companies. Um, our dialogues put forth really a shared vision around what uh, setting and achieving a climate transition strategy looks like for companies, um, how they effectively communicate and disclose information to investors, um, and how boards of these companies can think about climate risk uh, among the other 
risks and opportunities that those companies face. And the goal here is to show um, through, through this, these dialogues and influence um, that there is a long-term investor base um, that does think seriously about climate risk um, and expects uh, companies to be managing those risks and taking advantage of any opportunities they have um, related to the climate transition. Um, it's hard to, I think, overestimate in, in a lot of ways the, the impact um, of this initiative over the last five years um, since it, it took place. Um, when, when we started in 2018, um, no companies on that, that list um, had a net zero strategy in place. Um, by 2020, 43% of those companies had communicated a net zero, um, time-bound net zero strategy. Um, and then as of January of this year, uh, three quarters of those companies uh, have communicated and set a net zero commitment. So uh, anytime you hear about a net zero commitment that a corporation um, has adopted and put into place, um, a lot of that can be attributed to the influence um, and dialogue that investors have had through Climate Action 100. Um, we lead three engagements. Uh, it's sort of a, a divide and conquer um, approach in this engagement. We, we lead three engagements with companies and then participate in about a dozen uh, others in a supporting function. Um, so, so both of these, hopefully this gives an example of um, not only what we're doing, but how we approach our engagement work. Um, both of these initiatives are still active and will continue to participate uh, in them over the coming years and hopefully be able to communicate uh, similar success uh, in following years. So want to move on now to the, the second pillar, um, the way that we integrate uh, ESG factors into the investment management process. Um, and what I really want to highlight here is that uh, ESG considerations are a key piece um, to an overall uh, larger mosaic of the way that we are identifying investment opportunities, conducting due diligence on them, monitoring them on an ongoing basis, um, and maintaining relationships with those investment managers um, that we invest with, could potentially invest with, um, or have invested with in the past. Um, as Allison said, uh, ESG considerations are not a point-in-time exercise. This is really an ongoing um, exercise throughout the full life cycle um, of, of our investment uh, process. And want to highlight, I think, three key areas or three key points in time that we do uh, engage with managers and, and conduct in a review of ESG practices. Um, the first would be during due diligence. Um, and this is where we, I think we have our most structured process to conduct uh, due diligence when we're uh, alongside our investment due diligence and our operational due diligence um, when we're considering a new ma uh, investment mandate with a manager. Um, that process is um, outlined um, below, and I think should be familiar with um, the board. We've, we've had this process in place uh, for, for a long time, um, continue to build on it and augment it um, and improve it over time, but, but largely has been the same that we've had for, for a long time. Um, our objective here is around investment risk and opportunity. Um, we want to understand how our managers are approaching their own ESG integration and if there are material ESG risks or opportunities that we should highlight and consider uh, amongst the mix of other risks and opportunities that, that we're considering. 
um, as we recommended investment um, to move forward. Uh, that due diligence is really tailored to specific uh, questions and, and topics for each asset class. Um, so we have a structured set of due diligence questions that pertain to each different asset class. Um, and it begins with this sort of shared set of topics um, that we'll look into um, regardless of the, the focus and, and approach of, of the, the manager. At the same time, we also do want to be flexible enough to account for idiosyncratic or unique in ESG risks um, that may be specific to an investment strategy, um, a particular asset class, um, a geography, an approach. Um, really, those ESG risks and opportunities can differ um, depending on the opportunity. So our, um, our process begins with the same structure, um, but does dive into unique risks that, that may be identified. Our North Star, again, here um, is really focusing on which of those ESG risks um, could be material to investment outcomes and, and trying to gain comfort that the investment strategy, the investment managers that we're allocating to uh, are mitigating or uh, eliminating that risk to the best degree that they can. Andrew, I'm going to you. Um, in, this, in this process, which I love and it's great, how are uh, managers on the private market side adapting to it? How do, what's their response to it? I know you've been working with them consistently. It, it's, um, we follow the, the same mm -hmm. structured process. Um, I think when I first joined Spurs five years ago, um, our conversation on ESG with some of our private markets managers was maybe the first conversation that they'd had or among the first. Um, now I think it's part of the way that um, nearly all allocators operate. Um, so our private markets managers are prepared for these conversations. Um, and I think we have really fruitful conversations. And they've moved really quickly, I think, to uh, adopt those best practices. And we practices. structure accordingly. We do. Yeah. And more, we've said this before, but Spurs has established ourselves as a resource for these right, managers. That's for, for, for some of the smaller ones who are earnest uh, and admit that they have a long way to go on their journey, mm -hmm. Andrew and now Blake have become a, a valuable resource to them. Right, because and many of those managers are so far behind in, in terms of how they've structured their own process, internal processes, and that's why I asked that question. Yeah, yeah, I, I wanted to highlight that, I guess, on the, the manager engagement mm -hmm. piece here, um, which is what, what Kurt's alluding to, is there are opportunities for us I think both sort of an inbound and outbound um, manner to talk to managers about their own ESG policies and practices. So um, we take inbound requests from them, given where we sit in the market, we see a lot of different strategies and approaches. Um, we have subject matter expertise in this area. Um, so managers will ask us for input in terms of reviewing an ESG policy, how should they should think about the collection of data, the use of consultants, um, communication to their LP base, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, we also make sort of outbound or proactive requests too. If we think a manager could improve on a particular uh, practice or policy, um, that's something we're comfortable doing and I think more and more comfortable to engage with them, give constructive input. Um, and I think what the outcome of this, you know, ultimately, I, you know, I have on here shared value. Mm -hmm. um, if we believe these things are important, this should accrue value to us um, as well as the manager. 
um, help further institutionalize them. Um, and I think there's all these other sort of side benefits we notice from time to time too where we can be shown to be a helpful and um, an, an LP that, that it's helpful and supportive of, of the GPs, strengthen our relationship with those GPs where uh, there are questions about allocation or uh, seats on LPACs. Um, you know, if we do this correctly, um, we can be seen as a resource, um, differentiate ourselves from other LPs, and I think get some benefit um, in that way too. Great, thank you. Um, great, so yeah, did wanna, I guess, use this time to highlight, um, I guess, maybe a, a double click into our due diligence process um, and highlight how we think about um, sort of environmental, social, and governance risks and some examples in each of those pillars um, using some sort of mock but real, um, real-like um, examples of different asset classes, different types of investment managers. So we'll start with, um, you know, how we think about sort of governance risks. And um, the example here is, you know, we considering investing with an actively managed uh, public equity uh, strategy that holds really concentrated positions in a few public companies, um, a small portfolio. And so in this case, we might spend a lot of time talking to the manager about their views on corporate governance, um, how they think uh, good corporate governance practices will affect uh, the success of the strategy, how they think about access to the board and management um, for investors, um, what protections are for minority shareholders um, in that company, um, if and when they may use tools like filing shareholder proposals um, or trying to wage a proxy battle if necessary in those companies. So that's a case where we're doing our ESG due diligence, looking at the mix of ESG risks among financial risks and opportunities, um, but maybe spending a little bit more time um, really on the, the governance pillar of ESG. Uh, an example of the environmental uh, pillar, uh, maybe for a real estate investment, uh, say a value-add real estate strategy um, where the manager is acquiring is existing assets, um, trying to upgrade um, those assets. And so one starting point there will be to, to look at environmental liabilities. You know, a manager's uh, going to buy assets that are in operation. Have they conducted environmental um, impact assessment? Are they taking on uh, potential environmental liabilities um, that could cause a risk down the line? We also may look at uh, things like environmental efficiency. How are they uh, trying to improve the operations of those buildings from an environmental um, energy efficiencies perspective, um, doing things like adding solar panels, um, electric vehicle in infrastructure, um, things that have an environmental benefit, um, but also could uh, generate financial value, um, a higher uh, exit price for, for those managers. Um, and lastly, we might think about uh, physical climate risk, where the assets located, um, does the manager have a good process um, to ensure that um, now and into the future, those assets aren't exposed to um, undue uh, physical impacts from, from physical changes to the climate. Um, and then last, one want to highlight under the social pillar, um, you know, an example where we would look at a private equity firm um, that's maybe investing in, in middle market industrial companies. 
Um, here we might spend time thinking about uh, how they're integrating consideration of the workforce and human capital management um, into the way that they do due diligence on assets um, and manage companies once they're an owner. Um, so these are things like looking at um, the environmental health and safety record and those practices, um, their relationships with unionized and organized labor, um, if there have been prior labor disputes, um, work stoppages, um, what their record is there, um, and then their overall focus on you know, job creation um, and preservation, um, how they interface with the local community um, and contribute to, to the, the workforce. Um, so those are, you know, hopefully three examples uh, across asset classes. They're based on, you know, very similar things that we do on a day-to-day -day basis, but sort of generalized terms to avoid um, talking about specific strategies um, that show uh, our approach starts with a range of ESG factors, but then can go a layer deeper um, once we identify a particular ESRG topic that we think requires additional due diligence. Um, and then lastly on this slide, you know, just wanna to highlight that our uh, focus on ESG risk and opportunity doesn't end um, after we, we make an investment. Um, we are continually monitoring this first portfolio um, for environmental social and governance concerns that could arise um, during the life of an investment. Um, this approach has evolved um, and continues to in improve over time. Um, but what we want to do when a concern arises is investigate it, um, understand the nature of it, um, and take any necessary steps um, that we need to address um, those, those concerns that come up. Um, I would say our potential actions are pretty broad. Um, and really depend on the circumstances, um, but it's always with a lens of how that ESG risk, um, reputational risk, legal risk could affect the financial outcome uh, of the investment that, that we've made. Um, so next, wanna to move on to the, the third pillar here. Um, and this is the uh, collaboration and communication efforts uh, that we participate in. We'll start by highlighting a few ESG partnerships uh, that, that we have. Um, one is uh, through the Principles for Responsible Investing, or the PRI, um, and the other is the Institutional Limited Partnership, uh, Institutional Limited Partners Association, or ILPA, as it's referred to. Um, and over the past year, we've joined two advisory committees with these groups. Um, that are really focused on advancing um, ESG tools and resources um, for the private equity industry. And Commissioner Bridges, hopefully this further contributes um, to the advances that, that private markets managers are making around ESG. Um, these, I think, are a really good leadership opportunity for SFRS um, to give us a seat at the table um, to shape the market around ESG best practices um, it's also a peer-to-peer -peer exchange for us um, where we can learn how other uh, allocators and asset owners uh, are thinking about their ESG approach. Why don't you promote your own position on that? Just, just to... Yeah, the, you know, I, I represent SFRS um, on these committees, um, and so, yeah, I think is... 
we also participate in a, in a group called the Thirty Percent Coalition. Um, I have a more of a leadership role um, in, in that organization. Uh, that group is focused on advancing uh, representation of women and people of color on, on corporate boards. Um, and so I'm over the past year took a chair co-chair position on their institutional investor committee. Congratulations. Are more companies are companies continue to sign on to PRI? Yes. Yeah, there's been significant growth um, in terms of PRI signatories, and I think the biggest growth has been within the private equity industry um, and the private credit industry. Um, so I, I don't know the numbers, but it's hundreds of new man asset managers okay. have joined, um, and I think the, the organization's a sort of an inflection point of um, what does it look like given a, a membership base of mm -hmm. thousands of participants um, all across geographies with different um, different approaches to ESG. Uh, so last, I want to you know, close with an update on our progress uh, towards our ambition to be a net zero asset owner by 2050. Um, and we, we currently measure progress um, towards this ambition um, on what we call our, our sort of blended public markets portfolio. Um, and so this is our public equity portfolio and the corporate sleeve um, of our fixed income portfolio. Why we do this is this is the only uh, portion of the portfolio that we currently have access um, to granular position level carbon footprint data um, that allows us to conduct uh, this, this type of analysis. Um, our objective is to, over time, expand our ability to, to conduct carbon footprinting across the full portfolio, um, but the market does not have access to or provide um, the data necessary to do that today. Um, the, the headline here, I think, uh, is, is good, um, is that we're ahead of the 2025 um, interim goal um, that we've communicated around the carbon footprint of, of this portfolio. Um, you can see on the slide um, the furthest right blue dot is where our carbon footprint uh, sits today, um, and the 2025 target is the, the red triangle, so we're actually below that today. Um, I think the, the picture behind that um, is a little more complicated. Um, and so, you know, I want to communicate that we've made good progress um, and particularly a lot of the decarbonization that we've achieved since 2017, which is our baseline year, has been a result of both portfolio actions that we've taken um, as well as the real decarbonization um, of companies. Um, However, over the past year, um, I think there are other factors that have influenced the, this reduction in this measured number. Um, that's both um, the factors that we use to measure this, which include the revenue of companies. Um, that's how we normalize our carbon footprint data, um, as well as the um, composition of indices and, and the, the weights of different sectors and companies with, within indices. So, um, all, I think, really good progress, but just want to caution that this number can be volatile um, year to year. There's a potential we could see a rebound effect um, next year, and so um, we'll continue to, to monitor this. The directional overall trend um, is good, though. Um, and then, you know, as I was alluding to, in addition to 
the measuring the, the carbon footprint um, and, and progress there. The other objectives of our climate action plan um, really are around continuing to enhance the way that we integrate all forms of climate risk into <coughs> our uh, due diligence frameworks and processes um, <coughs> and efforts trying to drive better data um, transparency for other asset classes. We're measuring right now a third or less of our portfolio from a carbon footprint perspective. Um, and so we want to contribute to those market structures where we could eventually get data for the, the full portfolio. So that's um, the presentation this afternoon. I'm happy to, to take any questions before we go into the, the voting items. Thanks, Thanks Andrew. Uh, excellent for presentation. I have a question. And I don't even know whether you can quantify it or even qualify it, but how may, is there a predominance, uh, not a predominance, is there a good critical mass of goodwill, attractiveness, uh, desire to learn more from limited, from limited, from general partners looking at us as a limited partner? Do we bring a, a portfolio of our, in, intellectual capital on this subject that can be beneficial to the general partner. Yeah, that's what I, I guess I was, you know, trying to communicate around these engagement opportunities is that, yeah, there are opportunities where we can be of value, I think, to our general partners. Um, and I think the, the biggest impact is probably for smaller or emerging managers where they are still scaling up um, potentially to be sort of institutional quality. Um, we may be among the, f the first or um, a few uh, public pensions that are in their LP base, and I think we can be really valuable uh, giving them input around their, their ESG practices, and we've had good dialogues around that um, in the past. So it's... Hard to yeah, quantify, though. No, yeah, I know. Yeah. It's hard to quantify that because it's... Yeah, but would it stand a reason to say that we would have... Um, a small leg up in a very topical subject to a general partner by being considered in some of these earlier stage funds that are doing some good stuff that, w that might be competitive. It's usually the opposite. There's people who do not want us. I, yeah, I know, but that's... But that's they not want us because of this, which I don't Commissioner think Driscoll, yet, can you unmute yourself? Commissioner Driscoll, can you un unmute yourself, please? Oh, sorry, it does it. Thank you. <coughs> okay, thanks, Andrew. Um, any questions? Yeah. So, uh, thank you first for this presentation. Um, it, it was very informative, uh, and even in preparing for this, uh, I, I thought it was very helpful to have slides like on eight, page eight, that talked about some of the history of the work we've done. I'm proud of. SFers uh, being a leader in this area and assessing this um, this sort of risk. Um, I also uh, liked learning a lot about our collaboration with other public funds that you described on page 11. So I appreciate to see that we're not just doing this on our own in a silo, but that we are working with other like-minded um, groups. Uh, I had a number of questions, and I apologize that uh, I have to ask them here live. Everybody's one of everybody's biggest fear is that reminder that you're getting old, which is uh, when you don't know how to use technology and you realize it for the first time. And I, 
had a question written out in email and had it sitting in my outbox for like two weeks. So I have to read them aloud um, today. So I, I, I do appreciate you taking the time to, to answer them. Um, you'd mentioned our collaboration with ILPA and uh, I've over the last year done several trainings, not only with ILPA, but in CPERS and several others. And a lot of the trustee trainings around ESG have highlighted um, specifically a major topic of concern, which is measuring risks speci specifically in private investment space around um, uh, lack of p labor peace agreements and labor disputes impacting returns from investments. Um, and we've seen it pop up all over the country now, and this has been talked about a lot at these trainings that I go to, to the point where um, certain practices are being shared. I'm not quite sure if they're best practices or not, but they're, their version of best practices around questionnaires and making sure to highlight sort of priorities around that risk as, as a limited partner to G, prospective GPs. So um, and I know you've talked a little bit about it uh, already in terms of the manager uh, communication, but can you talk a little bit more about um, how we uh, measure and monitor the risks from a lack of peace uh, labor peace agreements and labor disputes? And are those captured in sort of like the charts that we see when we see risk-adjusted returns and things like that? Uh, or is that sort of categorized somewhere else, maybe in a qualitative sense? Mm. A, a good question in, in terms of measurement. Um, we don't have a, a quantitative uh, tool to measure that today. And um, I'm personally not, not aware of any that exists, but would certainly be open to, to reviewing any. Um, I, I think that is certainly an, an element of our qualitative review of uh, the investment managers that, that we allocate to, um, where this could potentially be uh, a material risk to the investment strategy. And so I um, was trying to highlight, I think, in some of those examples, um, the way that we think about um, social risk, where, where I would put that topic um, within the social pillar of ESG uh, amongst the, the mix of other social risks, ESG risks, and financial risks. And so um, the key here is for us to understand um, our manager's approach to this topic, um, get comfortable that they have the policies and processes in place um, to mitigate any risks around any ESG risk, any social risk, um, and any risk related to yeah, organized labor that, that may arise in the, the strategy. Thank you. Uh, would you say that, I mean, how, how would we define it in terms of um, how material is this sort of risk of lack of labor peace and labor disputes in our initial outreach to when we're discussing with uh, GPs? Is it a big part of our questionnaires, a big part of the vetting process? To you personally, like in your analysis, is this a big concern uh, when we're evaluating potential GP partners? Yeah, materiality, right, is a, a qual inherently qualitative and hard to de define um, term. Um, so hard to, I guess, right, can't put a number on it. Um, ultimately, we invest in a range of different asset classes, different strategies, um, and there are some where relations um, with organized labor may be a material factor, um, and some where it may be a less material factor. Um, and so I think that that's the, the, the type of lens we try to bring to our, our process um, to understand um, if and where um, there may be risk and opportunities around with that specific topic. Um, it's the same way we would approach any 
um, of the ESG topics. Um, oftentimes, uh, they're defined sort of by industry um, and sort of best practices using industry-based frameworks um, like those of the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board or SASB um, that identify topics that are likely or may be material um, for a, a given industry. And so those really vary. Um, they have some great resources to look at um, sort of a heat map of when environmental, social, or governance factors may be more or less material uh, depending on the industry sector uh, that a company is in. And so that, that's the, the general approach that, that we take as well. Thank you. And do you, do, do you concur that with a lot of the stuff that I was indicating earlier that I'm hearing at conferences and all is that there is some sort of a best practice around especially labor peace questions within a questionnaire or at that initial intake that this is signaled not only to GPs as a major concern, but that there's some information that's brought back. Is that a best practice that we acknowledge, or is that just something that maybe some, some uh, plans are doing, but not others? Would love to talk more about what, yeah, what those resources are. Um, hard, to, yeah, hard to answer now. And then I guess the last question I have is what areas you think we might be able to improve on this area? If there isn't a standard practice or best practice, is there any ways that we can, as an organization, improve of being able to analyze this type of risk in our investments? Yes, certainly participation in um, forums um, like the ones you're, you're participating in. Um, I think that's why we are active in groups like PRI um, and ILPA, which uh, seek to promulgate best practice amongst LPs as well as GPs, um, but also I think do a really good job of um, keeping us clued into sort of forward-looking and emerging risk areas in the, in the ESG space. Um, these things are always changing, so um, I would say continuing to do that, learning from peers, um, learning from the market. Thank you. And then the, the last question I have is sort of following up on Commissioner Bridges' uh, inquiry earlier. Is when you look at when you hear about sort of labor dispute risk as it uh, pertains to some of these businesses, is it usually correlated to uh, GPs that have less capacity or less sophistication when it comes to ESG in general, or is this risk sort of spread out across even very sophisticated um, private equity partners of ours? I think I would be speculating <laughs> to answer that. So the answer yeah. there depends yeah. on the nature of the strategy and the, and the industry in which they focus, and that that may be a, a large manager, it could be a small manager, but I think it's much more strategy and industry specific, not asset class specific. I appreciate it, and you know, obviously, as a um, as more of a comment, uh, you know, we definitely want to be very well informed of this type of risk. It's something that I can definitely speak to myself and many members on the board that I've talked to that uh, find this to be a very, very um, important area of risk that we want to be aware of. And we definitely want to know that staff is very aware of this risk in all of the investments we do. But of course, especially in the private sector, uh, I'm sorry, in the private, uh, private equity and uh, the other private markets. Uh, it looks like we, we, we lost our, our, uh, Your our president, so I'm, I'm chairing. So who would like to? I have to, a question. Um, why don't we go with uh, um, Commissioner Driscoll and then uh, Commissioner Spike. Okay. okay, three questions, but I'll do number two. And if you follow. could unmute Commissioner Driscoll. Oh, thank you. Three questions, but I'll do number two to follow up with that Commissioner Thompson has been talking about. Um, ESG is far more complicated than SRI. The other, it's more than a buzzword. 
I'm trying to figure out how connected ESG is to sustainability. Because one of the things about sustainability, again, fairly broad success, will has to do with their skills managing people. I'm just wondering, do you see that as well? Yeah, I think ter terminology has gotten uh, maybe more muddled than clear over the last last few years. So there's a range of terms that people are using for for these practices. But I think, um, yeah, I, I agree. ESG and sustainability have a lot of overlap, um, okay. but may diverge in certain ways. Because we're um, in sustainable investments, it's, it's with partners who tend to take care of people well, whether it's their own in-house or companies they invest in. Uh, it may go beyond scorekeeping, but I forget how many companies we're in now. We're in over 30,000 companies. That's one. It'd be interesting if you like to count and you have other things to do. If we were to count how many actual employees are working in all those companies where we may own a dollar's worth versus <coughs> 100 million, how many are actually then under collective bargaining agreements? Because last night the manager, the owner, they can't do anything. There is no agreement. They're always negotiating, but there's that collective bargaining agreement which surfaces a lot of issues about good practices, best practices, unfair labor practices, things like that. But it'd be interesting, because we don't want to set up a rule that we're, where you will or will not invest in a company that has collective bargaining agreements in their companies. But it's just one of those measurements that triggers in the whole spectrum of ESG issues, there is that uh, people issue, how they treat people, the employees. Yeah, I believe about 10% of the US workforce is unionized today. Um, but I, I think surveys have also said that um, half or almost half of workers in, in certain industries um, would like to be unionized but are not. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a component of this as well, is not just um, the exposure to <coughs> that topic of workers who are in a union, but um, ensuring that managers thinking broadly about human capital, um, maintaining good relationships with yeah. their workforce and labor force. They have a goal to try and take care of the people negotiating fairly replacement like we always worry and argue around here. Okay, that was question two, thank you. Um, in terms of the process, again, the last couple of years, every one of our investments has work. You're attached to every one of the recommendations. You're right up is part of it. Obviously, the other investment team people are, have started to learn how to weigh ESG issues when they do an evaluation, even before it gets to your desk. The question is, is we have policies that have, we used to tell our managers do not buy. In some cases, we've triggered them to divest. Has the ESG process, to your knowledge, ever resulted in us passing on a manager because they couldn't pass it and a certain ESG score. There are, yeah, yes. Okay, that's good to know. But see, we don't see those results. So that means it's, it's, it's when it's, it's being applied. We're not just talking words. Correct. Uh, that's good. Uh, thank you. Question three. It had to do with page 20. Hold on a second. The question. Oh, yeah, page 20. Obviously, um, mm. that graph. Are there any concentrations? And it looks like for going for net zero, we've had some good progress to start with. Are there any significant concentrations? Meaning, are the domestic managers doing better than the global managers? 
or that way. And don't, you haven't evaluated that way yet. I'm just wondering if there's different pockets about where our goals, um, not that they mean more, but in other countries it has not been as significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a number of different ways that we can cut this. Um, and I think one of those is that um, EM companies um, can be more carbon intensive, uh, particularly in the most carbon intensive sectors like the electric power sector. Um, EM power companies are more carbon intensive. There's more coal on the grid than in, um, say, North America or Europe. Um, but there's, yeah, other ways that we sort of think about uh, uh, carbon footprint or carbon exposure, depending on the manager as well. Um, some of our systematic strategies um, may have more volatility in terms of the carbon footprint associated with them year to year because they're trading more positions. Um, some of our concentrated strategies, we have better line of sight into how the manager thinks about um, carbon or the type of sectors that they invest in. And so that is an element. Um, happy to share a more detailed report that gives some sort of attribution um, based on sectors as well as um, managers. Okay, because we have reasons for concentrating to add return, because you led to the three things we're looking for, increased return, lower risk, but then being, I don't say ESG correct or lower carbon, that certain things we have can be affected, but we can't walk away from returns just because our ESG standard may be too high. There's correct. how you That's a balancing act there that you're very involved with. Okay, thank you, Andrew. That concludes my questions. Gosh, I almost forgot what I was going to say. Um, but anyway, uh, I wanted to add on to a little bit of what uh, Commissioner uh, Thomas was asking. When you do when you do your assessments for investment, do you do you ask any of the organizations how they handle labor disputes and if they have uh, labor uh, agreements that they honor? It is, yes, it, I think um, where we think that this is a ma potentially material factor um, for a particular investment strategy, um, we will ask questions like that. Can you give me an example? Um, so the, I think the, the example, you know, it, to, to generalize or anonymize a, a particular manager, the example I gave about um, a, a private equity firm focused on middle market industrial companies. Um, we have a sense that industrial companies do have higher rates um, of uh, organized labor than other sectors we might invest in, like uh, the technology sector, um, software-focused strategies. Um, so that would be uh, a potential case where we would ask questions like that. So, so any other examples, like in real assets, like private equity firms or any of the firms or investments that go into hotels, housing, anywhere that you'd see any additional uh, representative labor? Yeah, I think similarly, um, if we invested in a real estate strategy um, that we thought could invest in assets um, where organized labor would um, be associated with those assets in some form or another, that would be a, a relevant topic to discuss. And what, and what kind of questions do you ask? Um, th things like you've, um, you've alluded to, um, I guess rates of 
organized labor um, within the assets, the, the type of properties. Um, any examples of um, past labor disputes that have, they've had, okay. work stoppages that have occurred, um, how they maintain a productive <clears throat> relationship with organized labor. Um, okay, yeah, that, okay, Good. Ultimately, I guess, right, our job is um, to look at the, similarly to, to financial outcomes, um, past performance is not an indication of future results, um, but it can be informative in terms of um, our due diligence process. And so um, we are investing before a manager or strategy has deployed capital into assets, um, but we can likely learn from um, past practices that they've um, engaged in or experiences that they've had um, in terms of these ESG topics. Thank you. And, and just one follow-up after hearing this exchange. In terms of uh, questions, you'd mentioned uh, some data uh, in one of your uh, responses earlier about how while 10% of uh, the workforce approximately is currently uh, under a collective bargaining agreement or union representation, up to around 50% described an interest in that. So one of the questions that came to mind as you were describing with Commissioner Safai, the sort of the types of questions would be whether or not a company that maybe doesn't even have uh, organized workforce has a labor peace policy in place. Because it seems like, based on what you're describing, is that even if they don't have a unionized workforce, they, there may be a unionized workforce come up from under them. And what is their policy when they see that? Um, is there a policy to squash it out, or is there a policy to uh, let the workers decide what they want to do? So is that a question that we generally ask uh, for any uh, sort of pri private uh, uh, equity partner that we might be jumping into with? Yeah, certainly something around upholding the right for freedom of association um, could be a relevant topic. Um, again, want to stress that this would be centered on um, potential investments where we think the organization could interface um, with organized labor or a workforce that, that might that be 50 organized. That 50% yeah. of... So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to go so far as to say we ask this question um, every time in every investment. Um, that's really the key to the materiality basis for our approach um, is trying to use our subject matter expertise to look at the range of potential ESG risks, which are numerous and broad, um, and identify those likely relevant for a particular investment approach and spend our time diligently those with, with a manager. But where there are instances where um, there is a workforce of that nature, we do want to ensure that our managers are upholding legal obligations um, and expectations around freedom of association, um, that they're maximizing the potential of their workforce um, in a productive way, um, that they're maintaining their social license to operate um, and aren't going to be uh, jeopardized in terms of acquiring additional companies or um, operating in other communities based on their practices in, in one. Thank you. May I add to that point? Uh, I know there's several ways of asking the question. It's not that you're pleasing any one of us or the board, but for a general partner, and they may have no employees or companies where that's an issue, but I would just ask them a question if they have a position about do you recognize people's right to organize or are you opposed to their right to organize or you're neutral? That's a way of getting to an issue that 
I wouldn't say satisfy me or other people, but that's that's a human interest issue. So I'm just that's no, a suggestion. No, no. Right to organize a big issue. Thank you. Okay. Great. Any other further questions or comments? Hearing none. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew, for that. Let's call the next item, please. We public, did, comment. We did public comment. Sorry. Anybody would like to step up to the podium for public comment? We have two comment requests, right? Yes. Okay. Hi, good afternoon, board. Uh, my name is Jordan Greenslade. I'm a senior field director with Worker Power, 501c4 social welfare organization. I work closely with Unite Here Local 11, the hospitality workers union in uh, Southern California and Arizona. The ESG report staff provided reflects substantial progress for SIFRS, has made engaging with the investment management related to climate, board diversity, and governance issues. And the report also describes SFR's ESG investment management process, which includes pre-investment, ESG due diligence, engagement of managers to unlock shared value, and the de development of an ESG scorecard, and also includes looking at labor disputes, as was just talked about. Um, I do think there could be some more specific metrics on the effectiveness of the fund's ESG investment management process. Um, but anyway, so over the last several months, uh, SFR's leaders have heard from hotel workers like Crystal, who's behind me, um, regarding labor disputes that have escalated to the point where workers have gone on strike at the Sheraton Phoenix, Aloft, and Fairfield LAX hotels owned by Blackstone, and the Hilton at the Peaks Hotel, Phoenix Hotel owned by Fortress Investment Group, create an e potential ESG headline and reputational risk for SFRs. The Sheraton Phoenix now faces five federal unfair labor practices charges alleging violations of the National Labor Relations Act, including the termination and unlawful discipline of two workers, allegedly on the basis of their union activity, unlawful work rules, banning expressions of union support at work, uh, and unlawful surveillance of workers' protected concerted activity. Um, we urge that SFRs publicly inform the firms that the fund will not reinvest with them until labor disputes are resolved and they can ensure labor peace and future further hospitality investments. Several weeks ago, New Mexico Treasurer Laura Montoyo wrote to Blackstone stating her office will no longer support the future investment of New Mexico state funds with the firm, at least until the firm can demonstrate that its business has significantly improved their labor practices. The letter references the hotel labor disputes in California and Arizona. And we also recommend that SFRs adopt policies that require firms to adopt labor peace agreements that would protect the fund from ESG risk associated with the strikes and other aspects of labor disputes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Crystal, did you want to step up to the podium? Good afternoon. My name is Crystal Padilla. I'm a cook at the Sheraton Phoenix downtown, and I'm a proud member of Unite Here Local 11. For the past 10 years, I lived in Phoenix. Living close to work has been fortunate, but a critical decision because I rely on public transportation. Unfortunately, the metro transit system is not as reliable as major cities, and due to other financial obligations, I'm unable to afford having and maintaining a vehicle. Before the pandemic, I lived in an affordable studio. I moved after my landlord raised the rent at the height of the pandemic. Since then, the cost of living has spiked, and a vast majority of landlords require income to be three times the rent. 
On my income alone, I'm unable to qualify to be the sole signer on the lease for the apartment that I've been renting for the past three years. Therefore, it makes it high, extremely difficult to rent elsewhere. I'm forced to stay where I am. I spend more than half my paycheck in, on rent and utilities on an apartment building that is 107 years old. It doesn't feel safe or sanitary as it's not very well maintained and comes with an expensive monthly electricity bill. Since I've been in this industry working at the Sheridan, a unionized hotel, I've been compensated better for my position, yet I'm still unable to afford health care. Even when I worked at lower paid positions, I still made too much to qualify for access, AZ Medicaid, because I cannot, couldn't afford not to work full time. I haven't seen a doctor in 10 years, with the exception of a couple of visits to the ER, which I'm currently in debt and still paying for. I have physical and mental health issues that need to be addressed. It's like I'm trapped in a loop. I make too little to afford basic necessities, but I make too much to qualify for assistance. Do you, you, any of you guys know what that feels like? I'm asking you to try imagine. Right outside the hotel is where we hold regular picket lines. 30 seconds remaining. On October 25th, my hotel went on strike for a day, and we will continue to do so if that's what it takes to win a fair contract. We are all tired of being exploited and not making enough to do more than barely survive. My coworkers and I have helped Blackstone reach a worth of $1 trillion. It's not right that they're not settling the labor dispute the Sheridan or other hotels in its portfolio. We also filed a federal unfair labor practice charge alleging that the hotel unlawfully terminated my coworker and friend, Matt Pina, due to his union activity and conducted unlawful surveillance of picketers since July. Matt has been testifying at investor meetings and picketing with us, and now the hotel has fired him. Your policies reflect that you understand these issues. Um, Time's up. We urge you to put these policies into practice. Our lives are on the line, and so is the welfare of your investment. Blackstone must resolve this labor dispute. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Do we have any more in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none, a reminder to any callers to please press star three to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no callers, public comment is now closed. Thank you, Madam Secretary, you want to call the next item, please? Item number 15, action item, approval of the annual update on fossil fuel investments, engagement, and restrictions. So wanted, I guess, start with a, just a quick lay of the land for the, this item as well as the subsequent items. Um, the way that staff's memos are structured, um, they should describe in each of them um, the nature of the restriction um, that the board has previously adopted, um, the criteria we follow um, for that investment restriction area, um, and any updates um, to the restricted companies that we're recommending. Um, in order to support your decision making, we also provide a market update on the topic. Um, we estimate the financial impact uh, to the plan of having the restriction in place. Um, and then we update on how our peers are approaching this topic. Um, we feel collectively that should help the board in terms of decision making for each of these items. Andrew, I might make a comment that you can assume that the board, each board member has done their homework on this as they were, as they should be doing. Wonderful. Um, so I, I'm not going to provide this introduction for, for the other items, but um, for, for this item, because it's slightly different than the, the five others, um, just want to describe that um, our investment restrictions for the oil and gas sector are not a sector-wide um, divestment um, 
like some of the other um, industry or business activity area restrictions that we have in place. Um, but they're based on an internally developed risk framework that we adopted in 2018. This framework allows us to analyze our publicly traded oil and gas companies and identify those that have uh, relatively higher climate transition risk than others and prioritize a set of those companies to engage with um, and identify a set of companies to restrict um, investment in. Um, and so applying that framework again this year, we do this updated annually, uh, results in 36 companies on our watch list. So those are the engagement priority companies and then three companies uh, on our restricted list. So we'll, um, happy to answer any questions on this item, provide any clarification that's helpful to the board. But again, the, this and the following five are all action items. So they do require your vote. So you want to do a present, uh, how are you going to do this? You going to do a presentation? This, this, as Andrew noted, the, the, um, this one's a little bit different than the others in that the, the framework is a proprietary framework, whereas the others are revenue-based and we're using MSCI data. So it's, given that this one's proprietary, we want to just distinguish it from this the others. This one item. This one item. Okay. But our approach, and we're, of course, willing to ask or answer any questions, is to Great. turn it back over to you. So well, any questions? I just have a point of information. Yeah, uh, given that these all require actions, um, and, and maybe council can help us with it, is it possible to take it as like an omnibus vote, or do we need to vote on each one individually as roll call? Yeah, we should vote on each one individually and also permit public comment for each one. Thank you. Okay, so we will be on item number 15, 15 now. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, so we're looking for a motion. To yes, I know, I know. Okay. I submitted. That's all the motion can be, right? Right. We're not changing anything. What? Well, if you want, I think we want to state the motion that saves you. Well, it would, yeah, it would be helpful, I agree, with Commissioner Bridges to actually state the suggested uh, action that's on the agenda. I make a motion. Uh, uh, to for SFers to reaffirm its intent to remain divested from certain oil and gas companies and adopt the 2023 list of restricted oil and gas companies presented in Table 1. Second. Right. Moved and seconded. Any public comment? Do we have an in-person public comment on this item? See none. A reminder for any callers to press star 3 to be added to the queue. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. No calls. Public comment is now closed. Moved and been, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Clarity of the record. Can we just say motion passes? The motion passes. Yeah. Madam Secretary, do you want to call the next one? Yes, item number 16, action item, annual report and recommendation on tobacco restrictions. 
motion Mr. that go, go ahead. <laughs> Mr. President, I move that the San Francisco Employees Retirement System reaffirms its intent to re uh, remain divested from U.S. tobacco companies and adopt the 2023 list of U.S. companies involved in the production or wholesale distribution of tobacco products presented in Table 1. Second. Well done. It's been moved and seconded. Any public comment? Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. We're hearing no calls. Public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor, say aye. 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 Those opposed? Motion carries. Madam Secretary, next item. Item number 17, action item, annual report and recommendation on targeted restrictions in Sudan. I move that the San Francisco Employee Retirement System reaffirm its intent to remain divested from certain companies operating in Sudan and adopt the 2023 list of companies involved in Sudan presented in Table 1. Second. Thank you. It's been moved and seconded. Public comment, please. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Moderator, are there any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. There are no calls. Public comment is now closed. Okay, moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Motion carries. Next item, please. Item number 18, action item, annual report and recommendation on firearms restrictions. Mr. President, uh, uh, Mr. President, I move that the San Francisco Employees Retirement System reaffirms its intent to remain divested from firearms and ammunition manufacturers and retail companies and adopt the 2023 list of restricted firearms and ammunition manufacturers and retailers presented at table one. Second. Second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Can we have a public comment, please? Are there any in-person public comment in this item? Seeing none, moderator. Do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. It's been moved and seconded. All those in favor say aye. 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 Those opposed? Motion carries. Mr. President, I move that the uh, San Francisco call the item. Oh. Item number 19, action item, annual report and recommendation on thermal coal restrictions. Okay. Mr. President, I move that SFers reaffirm its intent to remain divested from thermal coal companies and adopt the 2023 list of thermal coal companies as presented in Table 1. Second. Okay, it's moved and seconded. You want to call for public comment, please? In-person public comment on this item. See none. Moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. No calls. Public comment is now closed. Okay, it's moved and seconded. Those in favor, say aye, please. Aye. aye. Those opposed? Motion carries. Um, so. That would thank you very much for. Mm -hmm. and we have one, one more. more? <laughs> no. Item number 
20 action item, annual report and recommendation on Russian restrictions. So before, oh, sorry, I, before you. I turn in two pages. Okay, I have one, one quick point of clarification here. We're all aware of the circumstances uh, uh, that led us to this particular list of restrictions. Uh, and the restriction at the time was to halt any investments in Russian securities and then divest as soon as prudent and practicable from uh, Russian securities. In our memo at the on the bottom of page two, we note as, as of November 30th, 2023, Spurs no longer had direct exposure to Russian securities, which is true in a sense that we have no economic exposure. We do actually have one separate account for which uh, the, we own one shares of one company that have been written down to zero, but the manager has been unable to sell it. So it doesn't really change the nature <laughs> of the memo, but for the sake of certainty or clarity, uh, we actually have we do own some shares, but they have no economic value. At the moment. So noted for the minutes. Right. Great. Thank you for adding that. Sorry, I skipped over that. Maybe it was on purpose. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. Um, is there a motion order for number 20? Oh, number 20. I move that, uh, Mr. President, I move that San Francisco employees retirement system reaffirm its intent to remain divested from Russia and Russia Russian related sanctioned securities and reaffirm the 2023 criteria for restriction of investment in Russia and Russian related sanctioned securities presented in the recommendations section of the staff memorandum. Is there a second? Second. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. Public comment, please. Are there any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none. Do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, there are no callers on the line. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Okay, it's been moved and seconded. All those in favor? Aye. 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 Those opposed? Motion carries. Now I'll finish. Andrew and team, I mean, thank, welcome to the new, but this, you just demonstrated one pillar of excellence in the health service system that is out ahead of other of our peer groups, and thank everybody that's involved. And I think by the, ten, the tone of no public comment on some of this stuff, I, I, I like to think we, we answered the questions and we're doing well. I think, I don't know whether that's true, but thank you. Does that cover both sides? Because in, in, in 20, you have two different recommendations. Is that, did that last motion cover both? Okay. Okay. We'll call the next item, please. One, discussion item, Chief Investment Officer's Report. Commissioners, two uh, items to highlight under the CIO report. One, uh, plan assets uh, stand at $34.1 billion. Secondly, I wanted to update you on uh, approved investments that were approved under delegated authority. So first, under delegated authority, uh, SPURS is investing up to $80 million with Crayhill Principal Strategies Fund 3. That deal closed on November 3rd, 2023. It's classified as a specialty finance investment within our private credit portfolio. And this is the second investment with uh, Crayhill within the, the private credit portfolio. 
Secondly, under our delegated authority, SPURS invested $50 million in Pepper Tree Capital Fund 10QP, which uh, closed on December 1st, 2023. This investment is classified as an infrastructure investment within the real assets portfolio and is SPURS' third investment with Pepper Tree Capital Management. Um, we have the materials on, on the performance uh, for the most recent quarter, but since we spent a significant uh, time uh, with Wilshire going through broader performance, I was not planning on. I'm walking through the slides. And that's all I have. That's all we have. Uh, um, thank you. It's discussion only. Any public comment? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. Next item, please. Item number 22, discussion item, retirement board member, good to the order. Anybody? Anything? Great. If not, we're adjourned. Public comment. Public okay. comment. Right. Do we have any in-person public comment on this item? Seeing none, moderator, do we have any callers on the line? Madam Secretary, we have no callers on the line. Thank you. Hearing no calls, public comment is now closed. You forgot? Oh, I Yeah. <clears throat> oh, we, now, we now should say that we're adjourned. I, okay. Item number 23, adjournment. Adjourned. <laughs> I, I said.